0: Hello, dear listener, and welcome to another episode of Dakota Spotlight. Do you want to dive deeper into this story? Do you want to get episodes early and listen without ads? Well, you get all of that and more for as little as $5 a month. Go to dakotaspotlight.com and check out Spotlight Plus. Hey everyone, this is James with Dakota Spotlight. Episode 4 of Season 8 will be out on Wednesday of this week. That's Episode 4 of Season 8, Unresolved, The Murder of Joel Loveling. I really appreciate all of you who are listening. I'm currently working on Episode 5, which will be out a week from Wednesday. Meanwhile, however, I want to share with you Part 3 of my colleague Trisha Terinskas reporting on a suspicious death in Montevideo, Minnesota. Trisha is doing great work there, and perhaps you've also listened to her first two installments, which I posted right here in the Dakota Spotlight feed. If not, you can scroll back in this podcast feed and find parts one and two about the suspicious death of Rishufio Rodriguez in Montevideo, Minnesota. Again, episode four of Unresolved, The Murder of Joel Loveline, will be out on Wednesday. Thank you so much for listening, and here is my colleague, Trisha Terenskas.
1: He was crying, and I asked him why he was crying, and he didn't want to tell me, but then he said that uh, that a person told him that, uh, that he had to a certain time to prove that it wasn't him, you know, and he had a limited time, or otherwise he was a goner. This is part three in an ongoing series on the death of Refugio Rodriguez and the investigation that followed. Before we start, I want to discuss some news related to this case that broke on February 27th as I was putting the third print story in this series together. The Montevideo Police Department announced it had requested the Bureau of Criminal Apprehension, known as the BCA, to step in and review the investigation into the death of Refugio Rodriguez. The BCA is a statewide criminal investigative bureau in Minnesota. This decision to get the BCA involved came after our series of print stories and podcasts exposed a flawed investigation. Our reporting highlighted inconsistencies in the police report and medical examiner's report, and critical leads that were ignored by lead investigator on the case, Carmen Beninga. I learned of the BCA's involvement late that morning, on Monday, February 27th. I was in my weekly Zoom meeting with my editor and colleagues, and I checked my inbox related to another matter, and there it was. An email from Montevideo Police Chief Ken Shuley. He said in a statement that his department had requested the BCA review the investigation, and they had agreed. I was shocked. It was a big step toward justice for Refugio and his family. And so I got in my car and drove to his mother's house. I wanted Eloise to be the first to know. This wasn't news that would bring her son back. Nothing can replace him or take away the pain that grief rains down. Yet, it was a step forward, a step in the right direction. Finally, there was some acknowledgement, after two years, that her son deserved a thorough investigation, and that his family is deserving of answers. All right, well, I got to go write the story, but I just wanted to tell you in person... Um, I'm happy. I'm really happy and excited about it. Good. So. <laughs> Good. The BCA's involvement is a big step forward, but it doesn't ensure justice for Refugio's family. I emailed the Bonavideo police chief to ask whether evidence related to Refugio's death had already been destroyed. It was, after all, a closed case. He didn't respond to those emails. Chief Shuly's emailed to me the one that came the morning of Monday, February 27th, was sent in response to my request that he respond to a series of questions related to my interview with one of the nation's top investigators.
0: Hi again, it's me, James. I just want to tell you about Spotlight Plus. It is a subscription to the Dakota Spotlight podcast that allows you to listen to these same episodes without ads And you get access to them before anyone else. Your subscription will also unlock access to exclusive episodes, the Spotlight Plus newsletter, videos, pictures, documents, and more. All at the same time, you will be supporting me and Dakota Spotlight. Please check out Spotlight Plus by going to dakotaspotlight.com. Thank you for your support.
1: 24 hours ago, I found out the person I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months Sal Rastrelli has more than 30 years of experience as a crime scene detective. He spent his career investigating crime scenes along the Florida coast. He specializes in cases where there needs to be a determination made between a possible suicide or homicide. He's taught college courses related to crime scene best practices. He's advocated for nationwide policies related to police department standards when it comes to death investigations. And you might have seen him on Netflix's latest series of Unsolved Mysteries. That's actually how I found him. In the midst of my reporting on the death of Refugio, I spent one of my evenings winding down with one of the latest episodes of Unsolved Mysteries. It was about a woman, Joanne Romaine, whose vehicle was discovered in a church parking lot next to a lake in Michigan in the winter of 2010. Police determined her death was a suicide. The theory was that she attended her regular church prayer service one evening, and then walked into the lake. Her body was never found. Here's the part that caught my attention. Her children told investigators that Joanne was being followed. She had been concerned. The family hired Rastrelli to investigate. He appeared in the episode and noted numerous errors by officers who responded to the scene, Joanne and Refugio's cases are very different, but I recognize the frustration and grief in the eyes of family members who are pleading with police to listen to them. So I looked Ristrelli up and sent him an email, along with links to my first story and podcast on the death of Refugio. A few days later, my phone rang. It was a Florida number. I figured it was likely a telemarketer, but I picked up anyway. You never know. On the other end of the line was Sal Rastrelli. Refugio's story had piqued his interest, and we talked about it for quite a while, and we stayed in contact for the following weeks. We made arrangements for me to send him what I had in terms of investigative documents. The police file, the medical examiner's report, the toxicology report, and what little crime scene photos the Montevideo PD provided through data requests. I want to note here, before we move on, that Forum Communications did not hire Ristrelli for his services. I asked him why he was so interested, and he said he just doesn't like to see law enforcement mishandling investigations. Considering Ristrelli is an expert, I wanted to know how a crime scene is typically handled or at least should be handled. Uh, Before we get into some of the areas that were of concern for you looking at this case, could you walk us through the standard process for securing a potential crime scene, uh, particularly one that could be a homicide, like the one we're looking at here?
2: Well, you know, funny that you ask it that way, because every case... Has a potential to be an extremely important case, as any time someone's a victim of a crime, whether they're assaulted or, or they're murdered, uh, or you even have a burglary, for example, and no one's injured, they're still a victim, and every case should be approached the same way. the The level of of, of investigating that case should be the same. In other words, you have a a first responding officer that gets uh, dispatched to a call. Whether, and we'll use this case for an example. He he gets there, uh, he sees a body uh, with a hose wrapped around his neck. Well, the first thing the officer is required to do on any scene, and we'll, and we'll stick with this one, is, is there any signs of life? Is there any immediate danger in the area to anyone else? If obviously the person is deceased, then you're not going to call for EMS. You're looking around for any other dangers. There's nothing there. You secure the scene. That's the first officer's job, he, to secure that scene. If he needs help, call some other officers over there to basically set up the crime scene tape and give a nice perimeter because you don't want onlookers om- look- on the scene. So putting up the crime scene tape prevents people from getting too close to where they could see what's happening. That's the first step. He doesn't or she doesn't need to go to the body other than to check for signs of life and remove anything from the person. There's no reason at that point to remove anything.
1: We've gone over in previous episodes that the responding officer, Dustin Hissam noted in the police report that when he arrived on the scene, on the walking trail, and saw Rafugio's body, he states in the report that he reached inside his pocket to positively identify the body.
2: You don't look for ID. You don't, don't do anything. I mean, I've had cases where you know, there's a gun on the ground and there's a person dead and right away the officer wants to take the gun and move it. I'm like, what's the point? Leave it right where it's at. person's dead. They're not going to get up and shoot the gun. The gun's not going to go off by itself. Leave the scene alone. Just secure it. That's the job of the first responding officer. Then, of course, once that's done, they could take a few photographs, you know, that this is the way I found it and I left it alone.
1: Images were taken at the scene, but included photos of Refugio's belongings arranged near where his body was found.
2: You know, and then, of course, you call for your detectives and your crime scene unit. Now, in this particular case, apparently they don't have those, a crime scene unit. So what they should have a protocol for, especially in a serious case like this one, this is a very suspicious death. Call the local larger agency that has a crime scene unit and ask for assistance.
1: Law enforcement didn't call an outside agency from the start because there was no intention of investigating this death as a homicide. That wasn't considered until the Montevideo Police Department got a call from the Midwest Medical Examiner's Office the day of Refugio's death. Hissom tried to contact Refugio's mother after the body was discovered and sent to the Medical Examiner's Office but when he arrived at her home, she wasn't there. Instead, the officer discovered her children, Refugio's siblings. They told Hissam they were worried about Refugio. In the police report, Hissum said family members said they were worried about, quote, concerning things he had said the day prior. The police report didn't elaborate. What were those concerning things? No clarifying questions were asked or documented in the report. We know now that family members told the officer that someone had put a hit out on Refugio, and he had told them that if something happened to him, that person was responsible. We're not naming the individual Refugio feared because that individual has not been charged with a crime related to his death. The officer handed Refugio's family member the contact number of the medical examiner, and that's when everything changed. A family member called the medical examiner and explained that Refugio had feared for his life in the days before his death. He believed someone was going to kill him for his alleged work as a confidential informant. He didn't just tell one person about his fears, he told at least four people. That was later documented in the police report. After speaking with Refugio's family member, the medical examiner's office called the Montevideo Police Department and told officers about the family's concerns that call prompted the investigation into Refugio's death. The Montevideo Police Department called in its sole investigator at the time, Carmen Beninga, to handle the case. Carmen Beninga noted in the police report that foul play could be involved, yet she didn't call an outside agency like the BCA to assist in the possible homicide investigation. Had the BCA been called, or another outside agency with more experience in crime scene processing and homicide investigations, they would likely have done things differently, including the way the potential weapon, the hose, was studied and handled.
2: You know, like in in this particular case I mentioned, the the height of the fork of the tree uh, of where the hose was draped, and then where was the height of the tree where the rope was wrapped around it and tied off? Those are two significant things, not mentioned in the report, how high they are. Was this something that the decedent could have reached himself, or did would this have been necessitated a ladder? I don't know, because there's nothing in the reports that say, and the photograph surely doesn't you can't tell you know where and how high all this is.
1: We did receive photos from the Montevideo Police Department that show the hose in the tree, but without a reference point. We don't know how high up the hose was draped and wrapped around the tree. Those images, by the way, can be found in our news story at inforum.com.
2: Then there's the question of the rope, or not the rope, but the, the hose. Where did it come from? You know, mm-hmm. but the detective should have, that should have been the detective's job once the determination was made that the rope's getting removed and put into evidence where did that? Where did it come from? Was it a local theft of a hose? Is it a brand new hose? I mean, obviously, a person that's going to commit suicide, typically, they think about what they're going to do first. To use a garden hose, I have to say, is one of the strangest ones I've ever heard of. I've seen ropes, I've seen extension cords, I've seen dog leashes, and, and a number of other things. Uh, bathrobe um, ties, you know your the the uh, belt from a bathroom, things mm-hmm. like that, or even a belt uh, that you would wear around your waist. But a garden hose, is, it, for me, has got to be a first. And mm-hmm. where did it come from? Was it new? Was it old? Was it stolen? What's the deal with the garden hose?
1: The police report didn't mention any effort to find out where the hose came from. They didn't canvass the area to ask neighbors if they were missing a hose. It's a question that seems to be obvious but nothing in the police report indicated an effort to figure it out. In a town of 5,000 residents, and only a few blocks of homes are on the walking trail, it's tough to accept that the effort to find out where the hose came from wasn't made. Rastrelli wasn't able to assess all of the crime scene photos. When we requested images related to the case, the Montevideo Police Department did not include images of Refugio's body. I asked why, and Chief Julie responded with an email he highlighted a portion of a Minnesota statute related to law enforcement data. It read, Images and recordings, including photographs, video, and audio recordings, which are part of an inactive investigative file and which are clearly offensive to common sensibilities, are classified as private or non-public data. I can understand that decision. Yet it was difficult at this point to trust the Montevideo Police Department to describe exactly how Refugio was found. The story has changed from a hanging to a partial hanging to a description of Refugio found kneeling on the ground with a hose around his neck. I did, though, receive a photo from an anonymous source taken at a distance of Refugio just as a cop car was pulling up to the scene. It's blurry, but it shows Refugio slouched, on his knees, on a retaining wall, along the walking path, with a hose around his neck. Coming up on part four of this series. He and a number of other people had said, look, the medical examiner's report says suicide and that's all you need to know.
2: know. And so
1: I'd, I'd love your response to that. And you did cover it a bit, but just the importance of You know, in addition to the
2: medical examiner's report, the... This is, that's an extremely good question and a good, good point. There are cases where people are so afraid, so petrified, they're frozen. Uh, A gun to the head uh, with maybe the additional threats to uh, life and limb or a loved one uh, would basically cause a person to just freeze up and just let anybody do what they want to them.
1: You've been listening to The Vault, a forum communications podcast featuring true crime and general intrigue in the upper Midwest. I'm your host, Forum Communications investigative reporter Trisha Turinskis. Thank you for listening.
0: Thank you for listening. To support my work, get early access, listen ad-free, and much more, please consider subscribing to Spotlight Plus. Learn more about Spotlight Plus at dakotaspotlight.com.